What's up, Chapel fam? How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all sound good. I want to encourage you with Pastor Anthony. If you have not like connected at Chapel or joined, you're not involved. Essentials is that place for you to find out everything you need to know and get connected at Chapel. It's a great experience. You get to meet a bunch of people and get connected here and make this your church family. Uh, today is a special day. I think he's going to be at the, the second service. Uh, but this past week, I think Friday, we had a 20th year anniversary of one of our employees at Shoals Dream Center. But he's also one of the leaders in this church's pillars here, and it's Bobby McCord. I don't know if Bobby's here, but if you would give Bobby a big round of applause real quick. If you don't know Bobby, you are missing out tremendously. He's just a humble, meek, strong man of God and just a great blessing to the Shoals Dream Center, this community, and this church as a whole. And so uh, it's just great to have him around. So if you see him, tell him thank you. Uh, A lot of good stuff going on. Uh, The Jesus Revolution movie came out this past week. I'm not going to see it yet, but I encourage you to go watch that movie. Um, I'm a byproduct. Some of my greatest mentors and friends uh, came, or I guess, you know, recovering hippies from the 70s, got saved in the Jesus People movement and really just spent time with me and discipling me in relationship with Jesus, not in just doctrine, but relationship with Jesus. So I've heard all these incredible stories, and so it's just incredible what that movement has done to the church at large, but also to America at large. And so I'm going to go today. If you've not been, I'm going to be there at 4.30, so if you want to join me, I'll buy you some popcorn or at least share some of mine with you. Uh, so 4.30 at the movie theater. If your Bibles turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm pushing Paul's in our Apostles' Creed series to kind of unpack what I believe God is doing through not just Asbury Revival, but what God is doing in church. I think Asbury was just kind of a, a marker for what God was doing. We've seen you know, spontaneous, similar situations like Asbury happen on college campuses, at Lee, at Samford, um, at Texas A&M, uh, all over the place, even Radiant. They've been in 24 hours of prayer since their Radiant School of Ministries came back from Asbury. And so I believe God is doing some special things, and I believe it's my job as a pastor to make sure uh, we are a part of whatever God is doing. We don't want to move and hope God catches up with us. We want to find out what God is doing and catch up with God. And so we're going to take a little bit of time just to unpack that. We did that last week, uh, but today I think it's very pivotal what God is doing. I, I think God is stretching some things. I think especially with Gen Xers or whatever the term is now, Gen Zers, whatever it may be, uh, that God is doing something special in their generation, but he's going to form them for this season to come. And next we're going to have kind of a next-gen Sunday. We're going to walk that out and what that looks like for us. Uh, but I was reminded this week just in prayer of this story I heard a couple years ago, and this man was telling his story about he grew up in the 1940s and 50s, and his parents took him to Yosemite National Park, right, one of the great national parks in America. And every year they'd have this event called the Yosemite Firefall. And what was happening, there was this huge peak that overlooked the national park, and they would build campfires, and finally they started kind of building all this wood that had fallen down so that way they could clean up so it wouldn't cause wildfires. They'd set it on fire on top of this cliff, and people would come from miles and miles away at the bottom to watch this fire. And so they would start chanting, fire, fall, fire, fall, fire, fall. And they would push with bulldozers this huge bonfire off this cliff, and it would tumble down the cliff down to the bottom and look like this waterfall of fire. And so this, this guy had marked him as a young kid. He wanted to see it again. And so he found out when it was going to happen, and he made the drive up to Yosemite, and he gets to Yosemite, and there's nobody there. Like, it's like the rapture happened. He's by himself. He's scared that he got left behind. He's, he's nervous. He's afraid. He finally finds a park ranger, and he says, hey, like, I came for the firefall. He said, where's the fire? He said, well, that stopped in 1968. 
know, thank God for social media. They said that stopped in 1968. They said the fire doesn't fall here anymore. And it reminded me of kind of what God was doing now. I think for many churches and many believers, we could say that the fire doesn't fall here anymore. That maybe the fire fell in your life with fire in your soul, the fire of the Holy Spirit. He, he came, he fell in your life at one point. But it's been a while but since you went and checked on that fire. Maybe for some churches, maybe the fire fell at some point. When you look at all the denominational churches, they all started out of a move of the fire of the Holy Spirit. The Methodist denomination, which is now split over affirming LGBTQT and not affirming LGBTQT, we would mostly say it's it's a pretty dead denomination. It started by the revival fires of John and Charles Wesley. Look at the the Baptist church. It was started by the fire revival after the Reformation. You look at all these denominations, even the Church of Christ, the very beginnings had a fiery experience of the Holy Spirit. But what happens is we start to try to manipulate or ordain or try to control the fire. And then you lose the flame and the heat of the fire. And then you become graves or empty vessels that are just formed in God with no power. And we need the fire of the Holy Spirit. For without his heat, we become brittle and rigid believers. We need the warmth of the Holy Spirit. For without him, we grow cold and cold-hearted and cold towards one another. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit to light up the darkness of the culture around us. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit to bring passion back to our lives and back to our souls. And for many of us, we could say, the fire doesn't fall here anymore. And I will tell you, a Christian without fire is not a Christian at all. You look at the Bible Almost every single believer from the Old Testament through the New Testament had an encounter with the fire of God. Whether it was Moses on the backside of the desert, he had an encounter with the fire of God. It changed his life. Whether it was Elijah, whether it was David, you go through the prophets, you get to the New Testament. The disciples were not released to be the disciples God called them to be until they experienced the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so you say, well, what do you think God is doing? I think our generation... Maybe you're a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger. I think our generation mishandled the fire of God. Whether it's Toronto, whether it's Brownsville, we started chasing fires rather than being fire carriers. And I believe what God is doing is he's now entrusting the fire of God to a bunch of 18 through 25-year-olds that we don't even trust with voting, the economy, or with jobs. <laughs> he's entrusting to them the fire of heaven. And so I think for us as believers, it's for us to get as close to them as possible so we can pick up some sparks. But I think it's also up to us to make sure we fan the flames to make sure their fire stay as hot as they possibly can because I believe God is forming them for his return. I believe God is forming them with the fire as, as a blacksmith, the grand blacksmith, he's using the fires of revival, the fires of culture, the fires that surround them, and the fire of the Holy Spirit to form them, to forge them in to the bride of Christ that can repair the coming of Jesus. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul is saying this to Timothy. I'm going to read it, and I'll break it down. It says this starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, I might say last days, There will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, and the parents said amen to that. I love the Bible. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal and not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But this one in verse 5 is very interesting. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid those people. Oh, but God, they go to church with me. Avoid such people. But they're my family. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households. He doesn't say church households. And capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Always learning, always hearing the message, always hearing the sermon, always listening to podcasts, always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth or to apply what they actually learn. Many they're hearers, but not doers of the word. 2 Timothy 3, 5 of the NIV says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a form, but denying its power. It's interesting that in this whole list of things, we would say, okay, that's immoral, that's immoral, you know, that's of the world, that's of the world. But then that last one, that is geared towards believers. Having a form of godliness or having the image of being a Christian, but denying or lacking the power. That word power is the word dunamis, which is the same word for the day of Pentecost, which refers to the fire of God. Meaning they have the form of a Christian, but they have no fire. They look like believers, but they have no Fire. They look like Christians, but they have no passion. And it's interesting, all of these, he says, are symptoms of the last days. Now, the last days precedes the last day. The last day is the final day. The last days is the birth pains, is the symptoms. Is, it's kind of how you start realizing, mm, something ain't right. And what Paul is saying is, things are going to get a lot more difficult before they get better. Or John Mark Comer say, if God's anthem, if Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, then the devil's anthem is on earth as it is in hell. And I think before the last days finalize, you start seeing this battle. Earth is this battlefield between heaven and earth. And what happens is heaven is trying to make earth like heaven and hell is trying to make earth like hell. And Paul says, watch out. These things will start happening. And he actually gives us a list of things that you'll start seeing in believers and people in the world that are symptoms that things are about to turn in a different direction. It says, for people be lovers of self. I don't know about you, but if this is a checklist, there's a whole lot of lovers of self on social media. You look at influencers on social media, what are they? They're lovers of self. You look at all the pride events, not even just whether it's, you know, Black Lives Matter, whether it's LGBTQT, whether it's national pride, we're all lovers of self now. For people we lovers of money, that one, check. For people be proud, check. For people we arrogant, check. For people be abusive. Social media, bullies, abusive of spouses, abusive of their kids. For people with disobedient of their parents, double check. For people will be ungrateful. When you just watch the news, no matter what you do for people, they're ungrateful and they expect more now. Why? They're ungrateful. For people to be unholy. Look at the Grammys. They're proud and arrogant, boasting of the unholiness. For people to be heartless. 
I've, I've currently read a couple of news reports of people that were actually dying in public and people stepping over them or ignoring them because they didn't want to slow down to deal with it. That's heartless. People be unappeasable. No matter what you do to help them, it just does not appease them. People be slanderous. You look at politics, it's just slander. People will be without self-control. I mean, they just do whatever. People will be brutal and violent for people will not love good. And right now, no matter what it is, if it's good, it seems like it's the opposite. No matter how good morals are, no matter how good parenting is, no matter how good stuff is, if it's good, it seems like the world thinks it's bad. For people to be treacherous, they'll be reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, and for people to have a good image but have no power. He said, these are the symptoms. And the themes in here would be misplaced love. In the last days, people will misplace their love for God in other directions, whether it's in their self, whether it's sexuality, whether it's in other people, whether it's in things, whether it's money, whatever, an image. They place their love and they misplace it in other directions. Two would be the elevation of self. That instead of worshiping and exalting God, we exalt self and elevate self. And number three would be a lack of power. No self-control. And you look like a Christian, but you have no power. It's interesting. You know, I, I didn't grow up in church. I just remember when I was six years old, my parents took me to this, like, Baptist uh, kids camp or something. And the only thing I remember is when I say the whole purpose of this kids camp was to scare the hell out of all the kids, that was the purpose of the camp. And the only thing, I don't remember any scripture. I don't remember the love of God. I don't remember grace. I remember watching this movie called A Thief in the Night. Some of you saw it. You're probably still scared. All I remember is the end of this movie. The husband gets raptured. The woman's running from the communists because she's about to kill because the communists were the antichrist. And there's this electric razor bouncing around in the sink. I refuse to use an electric razor to this day. <laughs> right? So I, we were taught that the last days is preceded by all these, these you know, conspiracies and prophecies to be fulfilled. But right here in the scripture, it's on a much more personal level. He doesn't mention Russia. He doesn't mention Iran. He doesn't mention Babylon. He mentions us. But I, I'm particularly interested in this last verse 5 where people will have a form of godliness but have no power. Right? Why does it interest me? Because as a believer, I want to always make sure I'm not fitting into that scripture. I want to make sure I don't present an image of a Christian but I don't display the power of a follower of Jesus. I don't want to carry a form of godliness and then lack the power of godliness. I believe you should have spiritual power and spiritual formation. And I think what God is doing right now in the world, he's trying to bring the two together. Spiritual fire, but also formation to help manage the fire so we can fire cares wherever we go. And I believe that's the definition of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is the ability to embrace the multiple tensions in the kingdom of God correctly. Well, I thought it was, you know, knowing the scripture. I thought it was Bible. No, no. Pharisees do the Bible back and forth. Jesus blasted them more than anybody else. He kept trying to help them understand grace and the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. He started talking about, you know, God choosing people, but also them responding. He went through all these tensions. Jesus had the ability to embrace these tensions in the kingdom of heaven correctly so you don't lose a facet of God. And I believe what has happened is we as believers are no longer spiritually mature because we don't like to embrace tension. We want everything comfortable. 
But when I read scripture, it challenges me to either trust God and love God for who he is or conform him to my image. And so some of the, the tensions in the Bible or the tensions in the kingdom is the kingdom is already here. Jesus said you're looking for it here and there, but it's already within you. It's in your midst, but it's also not yet. It's coming. That's a tension. Being in the world but not being of the world, that's a tension. Standing for unity of the church but also standing for truth, that's a tension. Most people just choose one or the other. Saved by faith, not by works, but also work, faith without works is dead. That's a tension. The sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign, but he gives us human responsibility and freedom, that's a tension. And what happens with all of these evangelism, discipleship, the spiritual gifts, but also decency and order, the natural and the supernatural, there's these tensions. And in our immaturity in the American church, we don't embrace them, we choose one or the other. If we did a poll, we asked you, you know, is God sovereign or do humans have responsibility and free will? All of you would pick one or the other instead of checking both. I ask you if you're saved by faith, not by works, but if works were necessary in the kingdom of heaven, you would pick one or the other. If I ask you to pick the word or the spirit, most of us would pick one or the other. And we build churches around choosing one or the other instead of being spiritually mature and embracing these tensions so that we can have the fullness of God. And I believe what has happened is you have people that want the fire of God. I want revival. I want altar call. I want people slain the spirit. I want, and I want all that. But they want all of that, and they want the fire, but they neglect the spiritual formation. You have others want the spiritual formation. It's all about discipleship, his word, knowing his word. And they neglect the fire, and they grow weak and cold and bitter. And what's happening is our immaturity is catching up to the American church. We can't withstand a... 2 Timothy 3 culture, where people are proud, they're arrogant, they lack self-control, they're brutal, they, they don't love God, they don't love good. They, we, we can't withstand it because we're not mature enough to handle the spiritual warfare that's coming against us from culture. And so I believe what God is doing, he's bringing spiritual maturity back so we can be spiritual fire people, but also spiritual formation people. But we can be the presence of God people and discipleship people. It amazes me most people think you have to choose. But if we were to go to a Pentecostal charismatic church, I promise you, you'd hear a lot about altar ministry and very little about discipleship. But if you went to the Baptist church or Methodist church or the Christ church, you'd hear a whole lot about discipleship, a whole lot about Bible studies. You'd hear very little about the fire of God and the power of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And my question was, at what point did we start having to choose? In the scripture, Paul is literally saying, no, you can't have the form of godliness without the power. I also believe you can't have the power without the form. John Wesley, in the first great awakening in America, said this. He was always reminding people about the importance of both the form and the power of godliness. In many respects, the Wesleyan revival, which was the Methodist church came out of this, was an effort to recover the power of God's love inside the institution or the time-honored structures of the church. Many people at the time opted for either unbridled religious fanaticism, which they called enthusiasm, or arid formalism in religion. In the Methodist, John and Charles Wesley rediscovered the power that is unleashed when the Spirit of God is channeled appropriately through the structures and means and the formation of people. He quotes, said, seek after the power of God as not to despise the form of godliness. 
And I think what God is doing, he's bringing those two back together again to bring power to the church where the fires of revival do not wane. They get carried along with every believer. It's like a sailboat. You put a sailboat out on the you know, Wilson Lake, what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to go across the water to the other side. But if they put up the sails, they put up the form of a sailboat, but there's no wind, it stays right where it's at with no purpose, no function, no results, no objectives, no destiny. But if you take the, the sails down, now there's no form of a sailboat, but the winds begin to blow, it just beats the sailboat against itself and starts spinning it around with no function or no purpose. I'm here to say that I believe what God is doing is he's preparing the church and the people of God to have the right form so they can have the sails of godliness in their life so the winds of revival or the fire or the power of God begins to blow. He can take us into all the parts of the world. Would you hear Jesus talk about the fire of God? He said it's for this purpose, to have boldness to take the gospel and be witnesses to all the parts of the world, not to just set up shop in church and experience the fire over and over and over again. It's the model that Jesus used to change the world. We get so far away from the model. I believe Jesus was a spiritual formation and a spiritual fire person. In the American church, we're neither. We're not a formation people. We're not forming people. We're not discipling people. But we're also not experiencing the fire of God type people. We are, if it's formation and power, I believe the American church is more per Formments. Or you could say, if I had the, my fancy board up here, poor forming. P O O R slash forming. We'd rather have ministry restrained to the platform and try to perform, and all it does is produce poor formation in the believers of God. Jesus never had a platform. Jesus never had a stage. Jesus never had pews. Jesus, had no, Jesus literally sat down. Everybody just stood up, and he began to teach them and discipled them. And so when you read the model for Jesus changed the world, it was spiritual formation leads to spiritual power, which leads to spiritual formation. See, in, Acts, in Matthew chapter 4, 18, what's he do? He calls the disciples. He says, follow me, and I will make you. I will form you into fishers of men. Then he spent the next three and a half years Forming these disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, molding their worldview, molding their perspective, molding their character, molding them into be many Jesus or Christ-like. He formed them, but then he says, I need you to go and wait for the power to come. Now, I, I don't know about you, I'm not the most patient person in the world. But literally, Jesus pushed the pause button on the church. So that the church could not do or would not do what it was established and called to do. There were people dying and going to hell. There was people that needed the church. But Jesus told them, hey, I need you to go wait. I need you to go wait. I need you to go to the upper room. I need you to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. For when he comes upon you, then you can be witnesses. So Jesus formed them. Then when the day of Pentecost had fully arrived, they were all together in one place. The Holy Spirit, the fire of God falls on them. Then they get up. And now Peter, who had been formed... He had a form of godliness, but not power. That's why he denied Christ to a little bitty girl. Now could come out of the upper room in front of a whole crowd of Jewish people who hated Jesus, can stand up and preach the most amazing message of all time. Why? He'd be informed, and then he had power. And he preached this message in front of 3,000 people plus. This is what happened. 
sons and daughters prophesied, the Holy Spirit fell upon us, and this is what happened. You crucified Jesus. Jesus coming back. You better repent because when he comes back, he's not going to be that happy. That was his message. They've taken 3,000 new believers, and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, they begin forming people again, forming them in the word of God, in the character of God, in the knowledge of God, in the kingdom of God. They start forming people again, but then after that, throughout the book of Acts, there's these fire encounters with the Holy Spirit. And so the model of the Bible is formation and power, formation and power, formation and power. But the American church started with formation and power, then formation, 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 formation. That's how we got stuck with institutionalized corporate churches. That's how we got stuck with image-based Christianity that the only power we think we have is power at the ballot box to vote who's going to be our senator, congressman, or president. I promise you, Peter on the day of Pentecost was not concerned with who was running to be the next Roman emperor. He had the power of God on the inside of him. He knew there was more change on the inside of him than there was in Rome. And so that's why I believe God is connecting Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, with Acts chapter 2, 42-47. So there's fire-filled, discipled vessels of God. We call it here, we're praying for a thousand spirit-filled disciple makers by the year 2030. So what is that? It's people who have been discipled, that have experienced the fire of God so they can go make other disciples. They can carry the fire with them to work, carry the fire with them to their school, carry the fire with them to their family, carry the fire with them. What good does it do to have a revival if the fire stays in Asbury? That was the problem with Brownsville. Everybody wanted to go to Brownsville. The goal of Brownsville was to ignite the fire inside of you so you could bring the fire back with you. See, that's the model of Christianity. We bought into this platform, event-based, attractional model. We have to come and get everything from here instead of carrying things with you. If you look at the book of Acts, I heard somebody say, you know, it's the, it's the Acts of the Apostles. If you had a little subtitle in your Bible, that's actually a lie. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit coming upon discipled believers. It took them being formed, it's being discipled by Jesus, and then two, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So they were vessels that could handle the fire of God. Like you don't trust your kids with fire, why? Because they can't handle it. God can't entrust you with fire until you can handle the fire. And so for us believers, we got to make sure we're ready. And so in the scripture, they had an image of godliness but lacked the power. That messes with me because it takes the fire of God to forge. When you look at a blacksmith, when they forge, if they don't put the metal in the fire first and they hit the metal, it breaks, it becomes brittle, it falls apart. But God in his grace will allow the fires of revival or the fires of tribulation or the fires of trial to heat up our soul so he can forge us and mold us in our character, in our love, in our unity, in our peace, and in our strength to be what he wants us to be. It's only in the fire of the forge that you can be molded. So it takes the forge, it takes the fire, but it also takes the, the forming. And when both come together, it brings a revival that is sustainable to the nation. So I'm going to give you a couple quick points. Form without, without fire. So form without fire. Form of godliness without fire results in religious moments or monuments of the past. When you have a form of religion, I mean, your morals are good, your character's good, you know, you come to church, you're still in the pew, but there's no fire left. At some point, you will become a monument of a passionate 
religious past. So how do you say that? Every great move of God started with fire. Every great cathedral you see in Europe, every great church you see in America, it started by fire. But at some point, the fire waned, and all that was left was the form. It becomes a monument. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. I mean, you have the form of God, this, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, you have the appearance but there's no fire. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're a tomb. The outside looks beautiful, but the inside is weak and powerless. I remember my pastor, we were in Dallas. It's probably 15 years ago. At the time, Gateway Church was like the thriving, big, everybody wanted to be Gateway Church. And so some of the young guys were like, man, if we could just do it like Gateway, do this like Gateway, do this like Gateway. And my, my pastor just got so sick and tired of it. He said, I'm going to take you out for a drive. He took us to a drive. He said, that church right there. He said, that was Gateway 1975 to 1979. It was a thriving church. He said, see that church right there, 1980 to 1986, that was the gateway of, of Dallas. He said, that church, that was gateway, 1987, 1995. He said, you know what happens? They get a hold of the fire of God, and at some point they try to control the fire of God, and it wanes, and it becomes a building that is a spectacle of the past rather than the move of God in the present. And so for us as believers, it's not just the church. For me, if I get so comfortable in my religion that I start having the form, I start presenting myself as a Christian, but there's no fire on the inside, am I really Christ-like? Just because I have morals, the Pharisees had morals, the Pharisees lived the right life, the Pharisees knew the word. It's so easy to default to a Pharisee. And the only way to prevent yourself from becoming a Pharisee is to make sure the fire of God stays lit in your life. So for me, the question would be, how do you become this, this believer who starts on fire, has a form of religion, but you lose its power? I think one is family tradition. Some come by a form of godless no power through family and denominational traditions. What's happened is you've been told to push the fire down in the name of family. Or you've been told those things are of the past rather than a current flame for your present day living. Number two would be peer pressure. Some come to the form of godness with no power by allowing others to extinguish their fire and passions. You're Zacchaeus, you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you're running after God and somebody told you, well, this is how a Christian's supposed to be. First of all, who knows what a Christian's supposed to be? Peter's cutting off dude's ears in a garden. Like, is that the model? Or is it the model that the denomination told you this is what a Christian looks like? Who are we? The only way you can tell who what a Christian looks like is if they look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, smell like Jesus, and do the things Jesus did. But due to peer pressure, teenagers will be on fire for God, but their friends will try to extinguish the flames. Why? Everybody likes to be around buildings that look great on the outside, but no one wants to be around a burning building. And when you're a flame-filled Christian, you are a burning building, and it exposes the lukewarmness of those around you. Number three is worldly influence. Some come to this form of godliness because of worldly influence. They're so caught up in the things of the world, culture, trying to keep up with the culture, trying to be cool, trying to fit in, that they lose the fire of God on the inside of them. Number four would be spiritual apathy. That some come by the form of godliness with no power by becoming too comfortable and too apathetic to the things of God. That's the one that for me 
I have to keep in check. Because you keep, in this one, you keep your morals, you keep your character, you keep your, your appearance, you keep probably your spiritual gifts, you keep your preaching ability, you keep your singing ability, you keep your instrumental ability, you keep your creativity, you keep all the stuff, but on the inside, you're just going through the motions. And the seriousness of this is all of us, this is probably the greatest temptation we'll face is spiritual apathy. And it's such a big deal that Paul tells Timothy, hey, people that have a form of godliness but deny its power, avoid such people. Could you imagine if heaven is saying, I need y'all to avoid Bobby Gorley. Tell the angels, tell these people when they pray, let them know, hey, avoid Bobby Gorley. Well, God, what's he doing? Is he immoral? Is he having an affair? Is he you know, greedy? Is he this? He's like, no. He's just going through the motions. And just going through the motions is more detrimental to people because you reproduce who you are, not what you say. It's more detrimental for their eternity than a slip up in repentance. And so what happens is, I, I remember I heard this in the um, Sheep Among Wolves documentary on, on YouTube. They were talking about the church in Iran. One of these women preachers in Iran came back to America with her husband, and she said after six months she wanted to go back to Iran. And they said, why? You're being persecuted. They could kill you. They could behead you. She says, but it's much more dangerous in America. They said, why? She said, it's so easy to fall asleep spiritually. It's so comfortable. It's so apathetic. I'm, no, I'm not challenged. I'm not this. And she chose to go back to Iran because she was afraid of spiritual apathy. So I'd ask you, do you have a form of godliness with no power? The other flaw would be fire without form. So you have the fire of God, but there's no spiritual formation. Your character, you're not making disciples, you're not being discipled, results in wildfires that dwindle into powerlessness and lifelessness and emotionalism. So you got the fire, but there's no formation. And so you have this fire, but the fire dwindles because the fire is there to produce a, a formation in you, to forge you, to form you, to disciple you. And you have this fire, but now you have no word to keep the fire alive with. You have no prayer life to keep the fire going along with. And so what was supposed to be a movement became a moment. So you see, this revival is, God wants to start a movement through revival. But due to the lack of preparation, lack of formation, lack of discipleship, what was supposed to be a movement becomes just a moment, a blip on the spiritual radar. What happens, I've seen this, I, I taught this when I first there's a revival culture here. People wanted to see the revival. What they wanted to see was signs and wonders. And so I, I teach this to them. You know, signs and wonders. And signs. I said, whoa, whoa. I said, God didn't tell us to chase signs and wonders. He told us to make disciples. And I said, here's, here's what it looks like. Every great move of God starts by people who are hungry for God and nothing else. They love his word. They want to be in prayer. They want to make disciples. They're doing what God commanded us. Go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I'll be, whole, I'll be with you always. That was the command. And so when God finally finds a people that actually do that, when he actually finds people that actually do that, he says, now we can release the power of heaven. And it releases the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's like this wave started with this mission. Now this wave propels this mission to magnify it, to multiply it, and to fuel it to reach more and more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But every move of God does the same thing. They're making disciples, making disciples. Oh, man, it's signs and wonders, healing, miracles, gifts. And they take their eyes off the objective and start looking at the fuel. 
And when they start doing that, they start looking back. Man, look at this. I heard one person say, don't get enraptured with your own shadow. They start looking at their shadow and the miracles in their shadow. Take their eyes off. What happens is they stop doing the mission. God pulls the power. He pulls the plug on the power. But now they're in these signs and wonders. Now people are coming to see signs and wonders. Now we've got to keep this thing going. So now it turns into emotionalism because we've got to get people to the altar and make people think God is still moving even though God has moved on. And that's why people don't like I think that's the beauty of the Asbury Revival. It didn't happen in a charismatic Pentecostal church. So now it can spread even wider. But when they come together, when fire and formation come together, it produces fire carriers that carry the image and the power of Jesus with them everywhere they go. When they come together, when I experience the fire of God and the power of revival, but also I've been discipled and I know my head, my heart, my hands are God's to use. When they come together, it produces people that carry the image of God with them to work. It carries the image of God with them to school, carry the power of God with them. They don't have to get them to an altar to pray. They can pray with them right at Shell Station, at the ball field, in the locker room. Why? They're carrying the fire of God with them. But you only carry the fire of God if your hands are prepared to handle it. Because if your hands aren't prepared to handle it, you'll burn yourself. You'll burn others. And when fire and formation come together, it turns moments into movements. And here's what it kind of produces. Fire ignites passionate followers of Jesus. Why do you need the fire of God? Because without it, you lack passion. Revelation 3, 14 through 16 is where Jesus is talking to the church, the church of Laodicea. He's not blasting them for being lovers of self or for pride, or for arrogance. He's blasting them for being lukewarm. What is lukewarm? Having a form of godliness with no power. It means there's no fire. Within. Fire produces the passion. Fire it purifies everything it touches. It's impossible to have the fire of God come upon you and for you not to be purified in some way. Fire illuminates the darkness around us. Why is it important to be fire carries that when you go to work, no matter how dark it is, there's some light being shown there. Fire attracts seekers towards the light and its warmth. You know, people flock to revival because there's a light there. It's a pure light. It's a godly light. It's not a stage light. It's not the lights of the Grammys. It's the light of heaven. And when you're a fire carrier, you carry the light of heaven with you. And fire spreads from believer to believer. Not revival to revival. I'm going to say that again. Fire spreads from believer to believer. Not revival to revival. Some of you, maybe in this room, you believe that the fire spreads like a wildfire. It just goes and goes and goes. No, no. The fire of God spreads more like one candle lighting another candle. And another candle lighting another candle. Why is discipleship such a big deal? It's because you're sharing your candle with somebody else. And when you do, it turns a moment at an altar into a movement of people. And without fire, you cannot be formed into God's image. It's this grand blacksmith. I think the beauty, just the blacksmith language, in the, that in the Bible, God never refers to us as stone or wood. It's always clay or metal. I said, why is it important? Well, clay and metal both take water and heat to form. But two, if you were to mess up and you were wood or you were stone, you can't remold or mend stone or wood. 
the clay, you can put the clay back on the potter's wheel and apply more water and begin to mold it back and to restore it back to what it's supposed to be. With metal, if the blacksmith messes up or you mess up and you get a kink in your arm or a kink in your sword, he can put you back in the forge and heat you up and begin to mold you back out. See, the beauty of this is that one fire doesn't dictate everything else. God can bring the fire again. And when it brings the fire again, he can reform you and remold you no matter how many times it seems like you slip and fall. So what I believe God is doing, I believe he's bringing the fire of God back and the formation of God back. So there's a generation of fire carriers that regardless if the church is open or closed because some epidemic or some political rally, that there's people ever, we call it thousand spiritual disciples that can carry the fire of God and have a thousand mini churches all throughout the community. So revival is not contained to a room, it's contained to people. So if you would bow, I want you to stand up to your feet, actually. If I can have our altar team come forward, any of our elders come forward, here's what we're going to do. Maybe you've been watching Asbury and curious. Maybe you said, I, mean, I wish I'd just go to Asbury and see it. What you're really saying is, because I, I was saying the same thing, I understand this, is that I feel like I've become a Christian that has a form of godliness, but I need some power. I need some fire in my soul. I need some fire in my spirit. The beauty is you don't have to go to Asbury to get that. You go to God to get that. And yeah, Asbury is this incredible environment of just the peace of God and the presence of God. But I want to tell you, Paul told Timothy, they have the form of godliness but deny or lack the dunamis or the power thereof. And that power only comes with the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to go into one song before we leave, this is the altar call. If you need God to reignite or to start a fire in your spirit, I don't want you to leave today without having that fire that ignites passion in you, that warms your soul. Without fire, you become brittle and rigid Christians. But with the fire, you become passionate, moldable. God can form you. He can change you. He can adapt you. And it says when the Holy Spirit, they're all in one place, in one accord. And as they worship and as they pray, the fire of God fell from heaven and ignited their souls. That is my prayer for you. That your soul and your spirit can be ignited with passion again through the sparks of revival. Not from the Asbury Revival, but from the revival of heaven. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray right now. That this scripture that Paul was sharing with Timothy is such a a scary caution. That, Father, all of us can be fall into this through spiritual apathy and family and peer pressure and tradition. The Father, to have a form of godliness, a form of morals, a character, a look, a name, the t-shirt, the hat, the Sunday morning attendance, the serving as a champion. We can have the form of godliness, but lack the power or the fire of God. Father, I pray right now for every person in this room that feels spiritually weak spiritually apathetic, spiritually tired. I pray for a reignition of the fire of their soul. Holy Spirit, I pray that you fill them, you overflow, and you ignite them to be a fire carrier for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So